past few days, we've seen how some quarters of the online community have shamed women for sharing their experiences of gender-based violence. According to a survey conducted by Plan International in 2020, 58% of women had experienced online harassment, with half saying they faced more harassment online than in the street. Further, the, reports, the report highlights that girls are being targeted online just for being young and female. It adds that it gets worse for women and girls who are politically outspoken, disabled, black, or identify as queer or members of the LGBTQI plus communities. In light of the revelations that have emerged since the Jube Jube interview on the podcast, it has brought a conversation that is long overdue surrounding how communities respond to women coming forward and the trauma we may inflict on their mental health. And there are many challenges faced by victims when it comes to their interactions with their local communities. And this is uh, according to Global Citizens. So how do communities support women then to step forward and report gender-based violence? Carol Ann Dixon joins us for this conversation. She is counseling psychologist and imago clinical therapist. Uh, Carol, thanks so much, Carol Ann, for, for joining us. You're welcome. Good morning, Asanda. Uh, before we get into the chat, let's just, uh, what is imago clinical therapist? Uh, imago is a form of relationship therapy where um, we assist couples uh, to communicate um, on a more equal basis, okay. where both parties are seen as having uh, equal power, equal voice, and um, have the right to be heard and to share. All right, okay, that makes sense. I just needed to make <laughs> sense of that for myself. Yeah. A bit. So if we touch on the report, I mean, in terms of uh, unpacking our topic here and how communities can support women to step forward, what are the major reasons that somebody will come forward uh, with the revelation that they've been raped and uh, we don't take it kindly online, especially? So um, what are the reasons why um, women do not come forward, are you asking me? Or are why, you why, asking do we, why do we te- why do we tear them down when they do come forward, especially online? Let's start with the online platform. So I think, you know, historically, if we look at, you know, the, the history of, of women particularly speaking and using their voices, um, I think historically there has been this culture of mistrust of women, uh, women who exaggerate, they maximize the event or the incident, um, they are playing uh, they're not really um, serious and they're kind of maximizing their um, vocal capacity and they historically have been silenced um, and misbelieved. And also, I think that communities themselves can't always deal with the, the truth and the kind of trauma that women do experience. Um, they kind of dismiss it. They don't think that it's... Um, particularly valid. They think people are making uh, mountains out of molehills. So, yeah, I think it's a historic silencing of women's voices that is the primary first level of um, discomfort that people have with women speaking up. Communities' inability to deal with the truth and therefore responding in a way that is not supportive to the survivor of gender-based violence and, and rape 
does it mean that that secondary victimization and however it plays itself out in the different instances is something that a rape survivor deciding to come forward and share her story or his story needs to always know that that's just what's going to happen? Well, it's, I think it is uh, something to be considered that um, if, if a woman has experienced gender-based violence and that kind of uh, level of trauma, first of all, they themselves are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. They may be depressed. They, they are feeling ashamed themselves. Very often survivors of gender-based violence do blame themselves. And they, they, um, they think that, that they've somehow caused it or they've done something that has invited this, um, this trauma into their lives. And so first, the first courage, courageous step is to speak out. And many women do speak out, and then there's the counter-shaming for speaking out. And so it, it takes a tremendous amount of courage and support. The more support they have from people who do actually believe them, people who are on their side, people who recognize that this is not just a, you know, this is not just a storm, this is not just a woman who has an axe to grind against a, you know, a particular person, but actually to, to take them seriously because it is a secondary level of trauma. Um, it's, it's, uh, this has happened to me, and now on top of it, I'm being silenced, I'm not being believed, I'm being told that I'm, I'm over-exaggerating and I'm causing trouble. Troublemaking is, is often the secondary level of shame. The terminology and the language we use around these conversations is another one for me. I don't know how much of an impact you feel this has in, in this conversation. And I want to bring this fake rape term, which I think is, is very problematic. Could this be opening the door to negating rape? Because I feel like now, if we're saying there's fake rape, a woman coming forward with her rape story will be first scrutinized against this term. Now it becomes, let's rule out fake rape before we even listen to her story. Yes, yes. And Asanda, this has been around for a long time. So, you know, the, the terminology has um, come to the fore, but the idea of a fake rape or a fake reporting or, um, the, you know, women who, uh, as I said, exaggerate incidents that, um, that happen to them where they feel that they have been violated and they're not um, being respected. And it becomes, it, I find it very subtle. Rape, rape doesn't begin with somebody grabbing uh, a woman and, and dragging them to the rooftop. It, rape begins with grooming, a whole mm. grooming process, long before the incident actually happens. Um, yes, you are. You are going to get your your violent encounters in in you know in the dark where it is sudden and it's brutal. But the majority of rapes that happen, particularly with somebody that is known by the person who is raped, it it starts with certain levels of eye contact. So the demeaning and diminishing of the power of a woman to say no to move away, to turn her head away, to um, express disinterest in, in multiple ways, verbally, non-verbally, is completely dismissed, undermined, mm. and actually used against her. They you know that whole idea of, you know, the cultural belief that when a woman says no, she actually means yes. So um, when women start protesting, 
at for small micro, you know, in, in Black Lives Matter, we talk about microaggressions. There are these micro incidents that women have to contend with continuously. And they get shamed for that. It gets dismissed. And then they feel powerless to actually say no and stand and, and continue with their resistance. And that's that why... Yes, and that's why then we end up having follow-up questions too that uh, coming forward of why did she speak so late? Why did she take five or ten years? And why are other women coming forward when uh, the first one wasn't saying anything, the other four didn't come forward? I'm also using the example of this jupe jupe um, uh, uh, story now. We know it's with lawyers. But, you know, the, the questions of why are the other four women coming forward now after the first one? Now it's five women instead of one. Then we have these kinds of questions. So how do communities then support women to be able to step forward? How do we create this conducive environment so that those who have been... Uh, traumatized and dealt with gender-based violence and rape can feel open to speak? Yes, I think, I mean, at a very deep cultural level, this is what the, the, the 16 days of activism is really all about, which is educating communities and helping them to understand actually what uh, gender-based violence is, how it starts, how it, you know, it's rooted in patriarchy and the silencing of women. So educating as, as communities take responsibility for educating themselves um, and, and and children at school. I mean, I was very, very pleased to have a conversation with a six-year-old mm-hmm. uh, recently who told me that at school they'd been talking about how boys treat girls and that girls and boys are equal, and it was, it was a very refreshing conversation. So mm-hmm. I think it starts with being willing to talk to our children and being willing to help uh, young women, girls, understand that um, it's safe and they will be heard and their experiences um, are valid and not to dismiss them. Um, I think also to, to meet their courage. So as a woman is courageous enough to speak out and start the conversation to validate her experience and to ask the question, please tell me more. Mm-hmm. That is, I think, one of the most powerful questions that you can ask anybody who is starting to express something that they feel incredibly terrified to speak about. They feel ashamed to actually start mentioning it. They're, they're, they're looking, they're kind of very hypervigilant and looking for the signs of safety. Is it safe for me to speak or is it going to be more dangerous? Can I take this step? And to meet them with, you are heard and please tell me more, I'm interested, I'm curious, I want to support you. And that's kind of a, on a one-on-one. And if we as women support one another, to encourage one another to tell our stories. Mm. And the reason that women come out later is because they have, over time, they've begun to, begun to realize what happened to them. Many women, when it happens, they're, they're kind of... Um, they, don't, they often don't realize the seriousness of what has happened because they are traumatized mm-hmm. at that time. And they, they go numb. They become numb. And that numbness and that internal silencing goes on for, can go on for years and years and years until somebody opens the door and says, do you know what, that what happened to you was actually rape? Or you've been violated. And then they begin, the penny starts dropping and they begin to realize, oh my goodness, that's what happened. And they can then label it. And once they can label it, they have a little bit more courage about speaking. 
And once one woman starts the journey, uh, many women will follow because somebody's being courageous to open that door. So we have to offer our support, uh, listening, non-judgment, um, and encouraging women to tell their stories without feeling that um, they're doing something wrong again. Absolutely. How do we get a hold of you for the services that you offer at uh, Imago Clinical uh, Therapy and uh, just for your social media handles as well, if you're open to sharing those? Oh, thank you so much, Asanda. I do have a website. Um, it's just my name, carolandixon.org, uh, and available on Facebook, um, Caroline Dixon, and the Imago Africa. Imago is spelled with an I-M-A-G-O. Imago Africa is an organization in South Africa that facilitates um, relationship health between couples, actually any gender, and uh, assists people to um, really learn how to communicate in a healthy way where there is equality and um, egalitarian relationships. Awesome. So, yeah. All right. Thank you so much again for joining us. A happy Wednesday to you. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks. Caroline Dixon. Bye. Bye. Caroline Dixon is counseling psychologist and uh, Imago clinical therapist. So you can find her on Facebook and then her website is carolandixon.org. We're going to talk travel, travel, travel Wednesday. That's what we do with Sapang Lubete, tourism operator in just a bit. Exploring more of SA's hidden gems. Just almost 10 minutes before we get to the top of the hour. It's about 12 minutes before we get to the top of the hour. Here is Beyonce. Find your way back.